0: Well, Lee Strobel was an atheist. Lee Strobel was the former legal affairs editor of the Chicago Tribune. He holds a master's of studies in law from Yale Law School, as well as a journalism degree from the University of Missouri. His awards include Illinois' highest honors for both investigative reporting and public service journalism from the United Press International. He was an atheist. Then his wife, Leslie, gave her life to Jesus and he went on an investigative journey over two years to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave so that he could convince his wife there was no reason for her to be a Christian. He wrote in his book, The Case for Christ, about his wife giving her life to Jesus. He said, Leslie stunned me in the autumn of 1979 by announcing that she had become a Christian. (laughs) I rolled my eyes and embraced for the worst, feeling like the victim of a bait and switch scam. I had married one Leslie, the fun Leslie, the, the carefree Leslie, the risk taking Leslie. And now I feared she was going to turn into some sort of sexually repressed prude. I love that. He's just being real honest. All right. That's what he's afraid of. He's afraid who would trade our upwardly mobile lifestyle for all night prayer vigils and volunteer work in grimy soup kitchens. Instead, I was pleasantly surprised, even fascinated by the fundamental changes in her character, in her integrity, her personal confidence. Eventually I wanted to get to the bottom of what was prompting these subtle but significant shifts in my wife's attitudes. So I launched an all out investigation into the facts surrounding the case for Christianity, the case, for Christ. He said, I plunged myself into the case with more vigor than any story I'd ever pursued. He he was used to investigating uh, cases and men and women who were on trial for crimes that they had committed. He would investigate them like a crime scene investigator. He would investigate all the facts and he would write about them in the Chicago Tribune and he won awards for it. He said, I applied the training that I had received at Yale Law School, as well as my experience as legal affairs editor of the Chicago Tribune. And over time, the evidence of the world, of history, of science, of philosophy, of psychology, began to point toward the unthinkable. Lee went on a two-year investigative journey. But you might be wondering, are there really any eyewitness testimonies of people who interacted with Jesus, who listened to the teachings of Jesus, who saw the miracles of Jesus, who witnessed his death and perhaps even encountered him after he rose from the grave? Do we have any records from first century, first century journalists like Lee? Who would have investigated and interviewed eyewitnesses, asked tough questions and faithfully recorded what they determined to be true or even became certain of? Do we we have anybody like that? that? That like Lee went around and investigated all the facts surrounding the life, ministry, and resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus. Is there anyone like that? That went on a journey like Lee to figure out if what we say we believe is really true, or if it's just the stuff of fairy tales and legend, is it really true? Do we have anybody like that? Let me introduce you to Luke. Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. He, he wasn't a pastor or evangelist, he wasn't even a Jew. He, he was an outsider. He was a skeptic. And like an investigative journalist, Luke studied and examined what everyone in the first century was talking about, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. All these reports are circulating about this man who died and rose again. And Luke's like, man, I'm going to figure out if this is really true. I'm going to investigate just like Lee Strobel did. I'm going to investigate and examine and study like a doctor that he was the case for Christianity, the case for Christ. If you got your Bible, open up to the gospel of Luke. We're going to look at one through uh, one, one through four today. Just going to give you an intro to the gospel of Luke. And as we do, we're going to learn about Luke and we're going to learn about why he wrote and who he was writing If you don't have a Bible, uh, follow along with us on our app, the City Church Lubbock. You can download it in your app store now and follow along with us. Click message notes and all of the verses, the points and the quotes that we're going to look at uh, today are are, are going to be there. And maybe one of the coolest pictures you've ever seen, uh, I'll tell you about here in just a little bit, is right there in the app notes. You can also follow along with me on the TV. But let's get to know Luke. Let's get to know who he's writing to, why he's writing as we launch our verse by verse study of the gospel of Luke over this next year. Now we'll have some different series and things kind of interwoven uh, in this study over the next year. But but we will be studying the gospel of Luke verse by verse, chapter by chapter over the next year or so. And so, man, I'm so pumped to start uh, this series. And uh, I I hope you are, too, as we dive in to the gospel of Luke, so let's get to know Luke. Luke says in Luke one one through four, he said this: Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. So so everyone's talking about this because this dead man came back to life. All these reports are circulating about it, and so he says many people are starting to write down what they're hearing and what they're seeing. They're they're interviewing eyewitnesses and they're and they're writing it down, and the eyewitnesses are writing down their accounts. Uh, that, that, that Luke says have been fulfilled among us, which we'll come back to. He said this, they used the eyewitness reports circulating among us, some translations say handed down, they, they used the eyewitness reports circulating, handed down among us from the early disciples. We'll talk about some of those reports here in just a little bit. Verse three, watch this. Having carefully investigated everything, Luke says. Let, let, let's go back, okay? Luke says this, verse three. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, Luke says, I also have decided to write an account, an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be, what's this word? Let's say it all together on the count of three, so that you can be certain. Let's try it again, okay? You're 1130, all right? You've been up much longer, okay? You can do do better than that, all right? So that you can be, one, two, three, certain. Luke says, so that you can be certain of the truth, not a truth, not my truth, not your truth. Those don't exist. Luke says, so that you can be certain of the absolute truth. So that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Luke, after carefully investigating everything is certain and he wants Theophilus to be certain and he wants you to be certain this morning of everything that you've been taught about Jesus. And you can be certain. I'm gonna show you why over our time together. Luke says, you can be certain. He was certain. Luke now has a dynamic faith. He he didn't always believe in the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Luke by nature was a skeptic, but now he has this dynamic faith in Christ. And and we know that because when everyone else was abandoning Paul, Luke didn't abandon Paul. Luke was Paul's companion. And even when times got the worst and everyone else abandoned Paul, Luke was still with Paul. He stayed with him through all of the, the, the stonings, and and, and through uh, the the, the imprisonments. He he stayed with Paul in spite of the cost. He has a dynamic faith and he's willing to suffer for Jesus right alongside Paul. He was Paul's companion. And so Luke wrote the gospel or the story of Acts as well. He wrote Luke, it's a two-part letter. He wrote Luke and wrote Acts And so this makes, watch this, Luke, the author of about 25% of your New Testament. Luke's the longest book in the New Testament. Acts is right up there with it. He wrote 25% of your New Testament. And so when he writes in Acts and he talks about we, he's talking about him and Paul. He didn't abandon Paul. When everyone else abandoned Paul, when times got tough, he didn't. He has a dynamic faith in Christ. He is certain that Jesus lived, died, and rose again from the grave. He is so certain of it that he's willing to suffer for his faith in Christ. His mastery of the Greek language, which is what the New Testament was written in, reveals that he was an educated man. He was a doctor, he was a physician. This was no uneducated fisherman. This was no blue collar dude, okay? This is a educated man. He's a doctor. He's a talented wordsmith whose mastery of the Greek language resulted in writings of great beauty. Luke's credibility has been successfully vindicated and his critics and skeptics have been embarrassed Whenever archaeologists uncover a new Palestinian artifact, Luke's historical accuracy continues to be upheld and unrivaled. One scholarly non Christian rabbi thought Luke, instead of Luke, that he was the finest historian in the ancient world. A non Christian rabbi said that. He was the finest historian in the ancient world. One of those archeological digs or finds that we became aware of in the last hundred years or so in the mid 20th century was Papyrus 75 or P 75 for short. It was some early manuscripts of the gospel of Luke and the gospel of John that date back to 125 AD within hundred years of Jesus. Here's a leaflet from P 75, Papyrus 75. This is the end of the gospel of Luke. The beginning of the gospel of John dates back to nearly 125 AD, some of the earliest manuscripts, copies that we have of the New Testament, of which we have thousands. It's the most, the scripture is the most historically reliable and accurate document in the history of the world, and no other document even comes close. It's been said of the New Testament, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to manuscript evidence that shows that the scripture has not changed over time. It is 99.5% textually accurate from what you have in your Bible to the original manuscripts. We're talking about words that are misspelled in some articles and pronouns that are in different places than they are in some of the earlier manuscripts. So, so there has been no theological or major doctrine or concept that has changed over time in 2000 years of church history and we can prove it. This dates back to nearly 125 AD. Here, here, watch this, here's what's cool. This is the end of the gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 24. The the inscription here says euangelion kata Lucan, the gospel according to Luke. And then it starts here, euangelion kata eunin, the gospel of John, showing that even as early as maybe 125 AD, they already were canonizing some of the scripture and saying these letters are authoritative and we already had the gospel of Luke flowing into the gospel of John at this early moment in history. If you're not freaking out like I am about this, then you're just not as big of a nerd as I am, I guess then, this is cool, this is cool stuff. We can trust that what we're reading today is the word of God. Jesus said this, my words will never pass away. He has come through on his promise. You have the word of God. You have God's word, he's revealed himself. Is Is that not incredible? God has revealed himself to you And to me through his word and ultimately through Jesus, we have the words of God here. How incredible is that? Luke is writing specifically, he says to most excellent or most honorable, depending upon your translation, Theophilus. Theophilus is translated to one who is loved by God. And so some have wondered if he's writing to more of a general audience, to the church, like those who are, are loved by God. But, but here's what's interesting is that he calls him most excellent or most honorable Theophilus. And so scholars pretty much agree that he's writing to a man. He's writing to a high ranking government official. And we know that because he addresses him in a typical traditional fashion in the way that you would address a high ranking government Roman official by calling him most excellent, most honorable Theophilus. Theophilus is someone who is probably intrigued by Christianity. He's hearing these reports circulating about a man who died and rose again. He's intrigued. And so what does he do? This is what, this is what would normally normally happen in the ancient world, you would have a benefactor, a very wealthy man like Theophilus, pay and employ someone to go study these things, investigate these things like an investigative journalist, and then write down all of their findings. And so that's what most scholars believe happened here, that Theophilus was Luke's benefactor, that he paid for Luke to go on this journey to investigate all of the things that they were hearing in the first century. Everyone's talking about this. You gotta imagine if a dead man came back to life Everyone was talking about it. All these reports are circulating. And Theophilus is either interested, he's intrigued, like he wants to find out if this is really true. Maybe he's a new Christian. We don't really know, but he employs Luke. Luke, as a doctor whom he trusts, is going to go and carefully observe and investigate and find these things out. Being a very educated man, he trusts Luke to go on this journey to interview and to investigate. That's what, that's what Luke said. I, I carefully investigated everything from the beginning. But here's what you've got to understand about this culture and in this context. That the writer would have always been tempted to slant things in the direction of the benefactor. You, you follow me here? Like, like to make them happy, to, to win their approval. You, you, you don't want to make a high ranking Roman government official in this day, and this time upset, right? You don't want to come back to them and tell them, Hey, listen, Theophilus, everything that you've been believing, your polytheism, your belief in many gods and, and, and many different ways to heaven, and, and just adding kind of piling one God on top of the next. And your truth is your truth. And my truth is my truth. And we can all have our truth and we can all have our gods. Can you imagine writing a letter to someone like that and saying, you're wrong. All of that's wrong. That's wrong. That was a wrong way of believing. And we know it now, Luke's saying, because we are certain that Jesus lived, died, and rose again and proved that he's God. He claimed to be God. And then he proved it by rising from the grave. And Luke says, this is certain. And I want you to be certain about this truth, the truth that Jesus died and rose again, proving that he's God, which makes him Lord and God alone. You got to understand what Luke is saying here. He's saying, Theophilus, listen, I know you paid me to go on this journey, but here's what I found out. You've been wrong. We've been wrong. There aren't many gods in many ways to heaven. Luke says, you can be certain of this fact, of this truth. There is one God. His name is Jesus. We're not polytheists. We're monotheists. There is one God. His name is Jesus. God revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. Jesus said that he and the father are one. There is one God and his name is Jesus. And he proved that he's God by rising from the grave. And Luke is saying, you can be certain of this, that Jesus is God. You ever sent books or videos or articles to a non-Christian family member, friend or coworker or someone like that, that you're trying to witness to and pray for. And so they don't believe that Jesus rose from the grave. And so you're, you're sending them the books and you're sending them the articles and you're sending them your YouTube videos and links and all that kind of stuff. Or, or maybe you're here and you're like, listen, you weirdos did that to me. I was the one that was getting the books and the articles and the video links and all that kind of stuff. Why, why, Why would a Christian do that? Why? Why why do do Christians want other people to know about Jesus? Why do Christians try to convince other people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one goes to heaven except through him? Why? Why can't we just keep to ourselves? Why can't we just keep our faith to ourselves? Why couldn't Luke, as he discovered these things, just say, you know what? I'm gonna keep these things to myself because if I write these things down for Theophilus and these things get out, this could cost me my life. So why not just keep it to myself? because Luke would write in Acts chapter four, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. Luke was convinced there's no other name. There is no other God. There is no other way to heaven. There is no other name by which we can be saved. So how much hate would Luke have to have in his heart? How much hate would you and I have to have in our hearts for our family members, coworkers, neighbors to not tell them the good news about Jesus. How much hate would we have to have in our hearts if we really believe there is no other name to not go tell everyone that there is no other name. Luke discovered there is no other name. And so he wanted Theophilus to know about it. He was convinced of this truth. And if you have been been convinced of that truth, then there's no other option but to tell everyone we know about the good news about Jesus. But Luke wasn't just for Theophilus, it's for you too. Luke wrote to Theophilus, but What he didn't understand was that God was going to use this letter, this this gospel, this good news he was going to use it and begin to circulate this letter in the churches. And, and then it was going to be viewed as authoritative or of the Holy Spirit, that this is God's word. And, and so then it began to be canonized in a book with other letters that were viewed as authoritative or from God. And, and they began to be passed and circulated among the churches so that everyone could know what Luke knew so that everyone could be certain of what Luke was certain of. And so all the the gospels and the book that we have in the new Testament are there for a reason. And one of those reasons is that they were widely used and circulated among the churches, among Christians, because they were seen as authoritative or from God. These are scripture. And so every Christian needs to know these things. Every Christian needs to follow these things so that they too, like Luke can be certain so that they can be certain. Luke says many people have been writing about what happened based on the eyewitness reports that were circulating or handed down by Jesus' disciples. He's referring here to the oral transmission of truth about Jesus in the first couple of years after Jesus rose from the grave. Things like 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 through 3, which is the earliest Christian creed and truth that we have in all of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, that goes like this. The gospel is that Jesus died for your sins, in your place for your sins, was buried and rose again and appeared to people like James and the other disciples and to 500 people at one time. And then Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me. That is a creed in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, that... Paul wrote down, but was already being circulated among the churches. It was a, it was a way of reminding themselves and remembering what Jesus had done for them and that he had appeared to all these people. It was important to them that everyone knew these core basic truths. So it was an early Christian creed. It dates back to within two years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Two years And so this is what Luke is referring to. There are these oral transmissions and stories that are circulating. And now people like the gospel writers like Luke are beginning to write these things down. So he's examining these accounts that he's hearing. He's examining what other people are writing down and he's gonna verify them. Most scholars believe that Luke's primary source material for his investigation was the gospel of Mark. Luke had the gospel of Mark. Luke wrote in about 60 AD within 30 years of the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel of Mark has already been completed. Most scholars believe between 50 and 55 AD and that Luke is using the gospel of Mark to go on this investigative journey. And so he's reading it and he's seeing the stories and he's going to those places and he's interviewing those people to get the eyewitness accounts that Mark is referring to. Luke is not your blind faith kind of guy. He's your reasonable faith kind of guy. He's the guy that's going to investigate. He's the skeptic that's going to try to figure everything out. Out. He's not your blind faith kind of guy. And in fact, in Acts chapter 17, he admires a group of people called the Bereans, the Bereans. He said that they would examine the scriptures every day to figure out if what Paul was saying was true. He admired them. He wrote about them. He, he admired their skepticism. To examine and to carefully figure out if what Paul was saying was actually true. He admired their skepticism because Luke, as a doctor, was skeptical of the supernatural himself. And so using the gospel of Mark, Luke is hunting down people, tracking down people, investigating, examining eyewitnesses. For example, when discovering the details of the birth of Jesus, you could imagine Luke going about Palestine, finding people who were there when Jesus was born, perhaps tracking down a surviving shepherd and asking him to recall the events of that night in that field outside of Bethlehem. Luke might have visited Mary and her family, questioning them, probing them to get the information that makes up that narrative. He had no interest in rumor or speculation. Luke wanted eyewitness testimony. And so you could imagine him interviewing the witnesses like, hey, I heard, um, heard Jesus swam on the Sea of Cyprus. And they're like, nope, he walked on the Sea of Galilee. Dang it, almost had you. you know, thought I could get you, thought I could get you, but you're right, that's what everybody else is saying too. Okay, So, so, it's, so it's real, all right? This is, this is the kind of person that he is. He, he was investigating these eyewitnesses. And like most skeptics, Luke probably had assumed that the resurrection of Jesus was made up that the disciples were lying, that like some were saying that the disciples stole the body. Lots of people today assume that the resurrection of Jesus is a legend that developed over time. But here's what's interesting. Because the gospels were written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, there was no time for legend to develop. And it's been proven. The great historian from Oxford University, A.N. Sherwin-White, Examine the rate at which legend accrues in the ancient world. Here's what he said. Here's his conclusion. It took more than two full generations for legend to develop and to wipe out historical truth. It takes two full generations. This is what this Oxford University professor examining all of history, here's here's what he said. It takes more than two full generations for legend to develop and wipe out historical truth. Now, let's consider the resurrection of Jesus. Let's consider the historical Jesus. The news of his empty tomb, the eyewitness accounts of his post-resurrection appearances, and the conviction that he was God emerged virtually instantaneously. Proven by the first Corinthians 15 verse one through three creed that dates back to within 24 months of the resurrection of Jesus. Instantaneously, Jesus's followers were claiming that he rose from the dead were affirming that Jesus's death were for our sins, that he appeared to them after being risen from the dead, making him God. And this was already being recited by Christians as soon as 24 months as a creed after the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospels attesting to Jesus's teachings, miracles and resurrection were circulating within the lifetime of Jesus's contemporaries, of his disciples, who would have been glad to set the record straight if there had been any embellishment or falsehood develop. William Lane Craig, a famous Christian scholar said this, the time span necessary for significant accrual of legend concerning the events of the gospels would place us in the second century AD, not in the first century, in the second century, at least, remember, after two full generations. That's how long it takes, that's how long it takes for, for legend to develop. He said this, just in time when the legendary ap- apocryphal gospels were born, things like the gospel of Thomas and others that maybe you've heard about. He said this, these are actually the legendary accounts sought by critics, which is why they're not in your New Testament. They had inaccurate information. Legend had developed by then, by the middle of the first, or the second century rather. And you began to see these other gospel accounts that had legendary stories of Jesus that had developed over time. The gospels are written within 30 to 50 years after the resurrection of Jesus. No time for legend to develop. Here's what German theologian, Julius Mueller said in 1844. He challenged anyone to find a single example of legend developing that fast anywhere in history. And the response from the scholars of his day and to this day was a resounding silence. There is no example. In all of history, of legend developing that fast, instantaneously, hundreds of people were saying they saw Jesus, that Jesus was God. This is not legend. Luke said this isn't a legend. I've investigated all of this very carefully from the very beginning, and I'm certain, and you can be certain, of this truth. So Luke is writing, saying, Theophilus, you can be certain of what you've heard of these reports that are circulating about this man who was dead and now he's alive. You can be certain about what you've heard, certain about the truth. What you've believed, what I believed before was wrong. There's one God and his name is Jesus. This is the absolute truth. And Luke says, these things were fulfilled among us. They were fulfilled like they were written about beforehand and then they came true. In in Luke's time with Paul, Luke would discover, he would find out that all of the Old Testament was pointing to a Messiah that would come and that Jesus, here's what Luke is saying, that he fulfilled everything that was written about the Messiah, that all of the scripture points to Jesus, that all of history is pointing to Jesus, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the nation of Israel. He's the fulfillment of uh, of the covenant promise to Abraham. He's the fulfillment of the covenant promise to David. He is the fulfillment of all of the scripture. He fulfilled the hundreds of prophecies that were written about him. And so Luke says, you can be certain that this is the truth. Luke was like the OG of deconstruction, okay? You you may have heard that word recently. It it refers to people kind of deconstructing their faith and figuring out what they believe and and why they believe it. And listen, every generation needs to do that. Every generation needs to figure out what they believe and and why they believe it and and look at the church and kind of hold the scripture up to the church and say, does the church look like what I'm reading? And if not, then, then then we need to revive the church and we need to bring correction to the church. Every generation must do that, figure out what they believe and why they believe what they believe. But much of deconstruction today is kind of more about how things make you feel and whether or not something hurts your feelings or disagrees with your lifestyle. And that determines whether or not something's right or wrong. And Luke would say, listen, the OG of deconstruction would say, that's not the way to go about it. The way you go about deconstruction, the way you go about figuring out if these things are really true, is by asking the question, what is ultimately true? What is ultimate reality? Because that's what really matters. My my feelings or opinions about what two plus two are, are matter not. The question is, what is the right answer? And what Luke would say, and I think what he would challenge you is the OG of deconstruction. I think he would say, find out what's really true. What is ultimate reality? What is ultimate truth? Not what's true for you or true for me. There's no such thing as that. What is ultimate reality and ultimate truth? Now, some people would say, well, you can't really know absolute truth especially when it comes to God or when it comes to life after death. There's no way that anyone could know absolute truth. And they'll say things like this. Think about this. Consider the parable of the blind man and the elephant. You ever heard this before? The blind man and the elephant? They'll say, how arrogant would it be to assume for a blind man standing at one part of an elephant to assume or to say what an elephant is like? How arrogant and foolish. How could they possibly know what an elephant is like by standing at one place, not being able to see everything else, and touching and feeling and saying, well, this, is, this must be what an elephant is like. You got, you got one that's by the trunk, a blind man by the, oh, an elephant's kind of like a snake. You, you've got another blind man by, by, by a foot saying, well, you know, an elephant's kind of like a, a pillar. That's, 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 what, that's what it's like. You got another blind man kind of at the, the face of an elephant uh, feeling around saying, no, no, an elephant's kind of like a big wall. It's a real firm wall. You got another one that's around back. Man, it's kind of humid and hairy back here. They're like, oh, keep going, scoot scoot around, keep going going around the side. See, see, what, what they'll say is there's no way you can know absolute truth about God or about life after death if we're like blind men standing around an elephant, kind of feeling it out in the dark and not really knowing what an elephant is really like. How arrogant and foolish they would say. For you to say the elephant is like a snake. Here's the problem. I got a lot of problems with this illustration. Okay, as I'm sure you can imagine. All right, here's the first one. Here's the first one. This parable doesn't work because it says there is no absolute truth by making an absolute truth statement. You follow? Some of you don't. Some of your minds just exploded, okay? Because you either don't know what I'm talking about. You're like, oh yeah, okay, that does make sense by saying no one can know absolute reality and absolute truth is making an absolute truth statement. So it's intellectually dishonest because you're making an absolute truth statement saying there is no absolute truth. That's an absolute truth to say that. So, so that parable completely falls apart. Here's more importantly why I don't like this parable when it tells us that we can't know absolute truth about God or life after death. Here's the biggest reason I don't like it, because the elephant has come down to earth and said, hi, I'm an elephant. He's spoken to us and he said, this is what I'm like. This is what I look like. Here's how you can know what an elephant is. He's revealed himself to us. He's told us who he is and what he's like, how to have a relationship with him and what happens after we die. God came down to earth and revealed himself and said, hey everybody, hey blind men, I'm an elephant, the elephant and the story has revealed himself and he's proven that he is who he says he is by rising from the grave, proving that he is who he says he is, that he is God. And so that's why Luke says, you can be certain of the truth, not a truth, not your truth, not what's true for you or not what's true. You can be certain of the absolute truth that there is one God, his name is Jesus. And he rose from the dead, proving that he is who he says he is, that he is the way, the truth and the life, and that no one goes to heaven. No one goes to the father except through him. Luke was certain After his careful investigation of the facts, his careful investigation of the eyewitnesses, Luke was certain and he told Theophilus, you can be certain and he's telling you today, you can be certain that Jesus is who he said he is. Lee Strobel, after his two year careful investigation of everything, just like Luke's careful investigation of everything. Lee Strobel said this by November 8th, 1981, two years later, my legend thesis, he was an atheist, that Jesus did not rise from the grave, that there was no case for Christ. There was no case for Christianity. He said, my legend thesis to which I had doggedly clung to for so many years had been thoroughly dismantled. This is a Yale educated man who was the senior editor of the legal affairs of the Chicago Tribune. He said, my thesis, my atheism had been thoroughly dismantled. What's more, my journalistic skepticism toward the supernatural had melted in the light of the breathtaking historical evidence that the resurrection of Jesus was a real historical event. In fact, my mind could not conjure up a single explanation that fit the evidence of history nearly as well as the conclusion that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the one and only Son of God. The atheism I had embraced for so long buckled under the weight of historical truth. It was a stunning and radical outcome, certainly not what I had anticipated when I embarked on this investigative process, but it was in my opinion a decision compelled by the facts. As someone educated in journalism and law, I was trained to respond to the facts wherever they lead. For me, the data demonstrated convincingly that Jesus is the son of God. No other option is viable. The evidence closes them off. After two years of investigating the leading scholars and the resurrection of Jesus and the historical accuracy of the scripture after two years traveling all over the world, interviewing the leading people in their fields. Lee Strobel determined that all of the data, all of the facts support the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. He said, there is no no other option. Really, there's no other option. The facts leave no other viable option. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant and once skeptical Cambridge University professor who was eventually won over to faith in Christ by the evidence for Jesus said this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus said, the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he's Lord. That's not a great moral teacher. C.S. Lewis said, that's nonsense. There's only three options with Jesus. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord, he is who he said he is. And that's what Lee Strobel was referring to. There is no other option here. Jesus is who he said he was. All of the evidence points in that direction. And so after two years, Lee had to come to a conclusion. And the conclusion was that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Now came the willful choice. He intellectually knew and was certain that this is who Jesus is. He is the son of God who died in my place for my sin and he rose from the grave. Lee was certain just like Luke was certain. And just like Luke said, you could be certain. Lee became certain of the facts, but now it came time for that willful decision. Are you gonna follow Jesus? Are you gonna bow at his feet and call him Lord? Here's what Lee decided at the end of his two year investigation. I had to take a step of faith. When blind faith was very reasonable, very logical. They said, you still have to take a step of faith as, as we do in every decision we make in life. But here's the crucial distinction, watch this. I was no longer trying to swim upstream against the strong current of evidence. Instead, I was choosing to go in the same direction that the torrent of facts Was flowing. That was reasonable, he said. That was rational. That was logical. Lee said, Our faith is reasonable, rational, and logical. There's no blind to it. It's a reasonable, rational, logical, Faith. What's more, in an inner and inexplicable way, it was also what I sensed God's spirit was nudging me to do. So on November 8th, 1981, I talked with God in a heart filled and unedited prayer, admitting and turning from my wrongdoing and receiving the gift of forgiveness and eternal life through Jesus. I told him that with his help, I wanted to follow him and his ways from here on out. There were no lightning bolts, no audible replies, no tingly sensations. I know that some people feel a rush of emotion at such a moment. As for me, however, there was something else that was equally exhilarating. There was the rush of reason. The case for Christ, Lee said, is conclusive. It's conclusive. Luke said it like this. The case for Christ is certain. The case for Christ is certain. And so here's our big idea today. You can be certain because Luke was certain. You can be certain that Jesus is who he said he is and that he rose from the grave because Luke was certain. Jesus said, blessed are those who believe without seeing. But the great news is that you and I can believe without seeing because people like Luke believed after eyewitnessing and investigating and, and asking the tough questions to those who saw. So you and I can believe without seeing because Luke talked to those who saw. And he said it was clear. Jesus is who he said he was. This is why we follow Jesus. This is why we are Christians. Not because we grew up like that. Not because this is what our parents told us. Not because of fairy tale, not because of legend. We are Christians. We follow Jesus because Jesus is God and he proved it by rising from the grave. Which brings me to our city seven foundational truth for this week. The city seven or seven foundational truths that tell us what we believe and, and, and why we believe it. And here's the one for this week. Why do I follow Jesus? I follow Jesus because Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he is the way, the truth and the life. That's why we follow Jesus. That's why we're Christians. Because we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Jesus said this in John chapter eight, verse 24. If you do not believe that I'm the one that I claim to be, then you will die in your sin. If you don't believe, Jesus said, who I claim to be, you will die in your sin. And so this is why Christians wanna tell everyone the good news about Jesus. So that the people that we love, all the way to people on the other side of the world and an unreached people will not die in their sin because they don't believe who Jesus said he is. This morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus, I wanna invite you to do so today. Give your life to Jesus just like Lee did so that you can be forgiven of your sin, made right with God and know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. If you do not give your life to Jesus, Jesus said, you'll die in your sin. You'll pay the penalty for your sin, which is eternity separated from God in a place called hell, where you will pay the fine for your sin forever. The great news is that God loves you so much and he proved it by sending his son Jesus to die in your place for your sin. The scripture says, when you give your life to Jesus, your sin will be forgiven you'll be made right with God. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. Would you make that your decision today? To believe, not in a blind way, but in a very reasonable, logical, rational way, because that's where the facts point. It's the most important decision you will make in this life is what you're gonna do with Jesus the most important decision, the most important thing you will ever consider in this life is what you're gonna believe about Jesus. And so I plead with you this morning, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Over this next year, we're gonna introduce you to Jesus, to his life, to his preaching, to his death, into his resurrection. It's going to be incredible. And I invite you to join us, not just in here as we study Luke in here, but we're going to study Luke in our city groups. I want every last person in this church to be in a city group in a Bible study where they're studying the gospel of Luke together over this next year. You can find a group on our app. Just click city groups. If there's not a group for you, you can start a group for your family and your friends. Pastor Brandon will be in touch. There's a form right there on that city groups, part of our app where you can start a new group. But I want every last person in the group studying the Gospel of Luke over this next year. We're gonna study the Gospel of Luke in our daily devotionals on our app. This week, we'll examine verse one through four. There'll be commentary there. There'll be some application points there. There'll be some prayer points there. Monday through Friday, we've got your daily devotionals taking you through the Gospel of Luke. In our table talk for families this week, your, your kids right now in their kids' classes and in our youth ministry down the hallway, They're studying the gospel of Luke. They're studying these exact same verses and they'll be with us every week. And the Table Talk is designed to help you as a family discuss the gospel of Luke together, apply it to your lives as a family and pray about it together as a family. I invite you to do the Table Talk this week with your family and study the scripture with us. In a month, we're gonna have these Luke Bible journals. On one page, there'll be the Gospel of Luke. And on the other page, there'll be a blank piece of paper where you can write and take notes, whether that's in here, in your daily devotionals, in your group, It'll be one central place for you to take notes. Out in this hallway, we've got a, a Luke wall. It's a whole wall. That's every verse in the Gospel of Luke. We, in, we invite you every week to highlight, to underline, to write, whatever, whatever you wanna put on that wall as God speaks to you. But over this next year, We're gonna hear from God through the gospel of Luke because this is the word of God. And God wants to speak to you. And I can't wait to see what he does in your life as you hear from God and respond in obedience and faith. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give us a passion, a supernatural passion for your word. And as we study the gospel of Luke over this next year, I pray that you would speak to us and you would transform us from the inside out. God, I pray that right now through the Holy Spirit, you would give us the faith that Lee had. Nudge us, God, nudge us by the Holy Spirit to help us believe and to be certain of these facts, just like Lee was, just like Luke was. God, grow us. And as a result of today, God, I pray that all of us would be more confident in what we believe and why we believe it. It's in your name we pray, amen.